Chapter One, Part One of Pioneer Work in Opening the Medical Profession to Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pioneer Work in Opening the Medical Profession to Women by Elizabeth Blackwell. Chapter One, Part One Early Life in England, eighteen twenty one. It is a great advantage to have been born one of a large family group of healthy, active children surrounded by wholesome influences. The natural and healthy discipline which children exercise upon one another, the variety of tastes and talents, the cheerful companionship, even the rivalries, misunderstandings, and reconciliations where free play is given to natural disposition, under wise but not too rigid oversight, form an excellent discipline for afterlife. Being the third daughter in a family of nine brothers and sisters, who grew up to adult life with strong ties of natural affection, I enjoyed this advantage. My earliest recollections are connected with the house in Bristol, number one Wilson Street, near Portman Square, to which the family removed from Counterslip, where I was born, when I was about three years old. My childish remembrances are chiefly associated with my elder sisters, for being born between two baby brothers, who both died in infancy, I naturally followed my sister's lead and was allowed to be their playmate. Our Wilson Street home had the advantage of possessing a garden behind it, containing fine trees, and also a large walled garden opposite to it, with fruit trees and many flowers and shrubs, which afforded us endless delight and helped to create an early love of nature. I cannot recall the sequel of incidents in this period of my life, for being so young when we moved to Wilson Street, the recollections of those early years are confused, but some things stand out distinctly impressed upon the memory. My eldest sister had become possessed of a small telescope, and gazing through one of the garret windows, we thought we could spy the Duchess of Beaufort's woods over the tops of the houses. There was a parapet running along the front of the house, and we were seized with a desire for a more extensive view through the precious telescope than the garret window afforded. So a petition for liberty to go on to the roof was sent to Papa in our names by my lively eldest sister. The disappointing answer soon came. Anna, Bessie, and Polly, your request is mere folly. The leads are too high for those who can't fly. If I let you go there, 
I suppose your next prayer will be for a hop to the chimney top. So I charge you three misses not to show your fisses on parapet wall or chimney so tall, but to keep on the earth the place of your birth. Even so, says Papa. Amen, says Mama. Be it so, says Aunt Barr. The Aunt Barbara here referred to was a maiden sister of my father's, a somewhat stern though upright ruler of our youngest days. But the dear father, with his warm affection, his sense of fun, and his talent for rhyming, represented a beneficent providence to me from my earliest recollection. Another very vivid remembrance of that first period of childhood remains. My father was an active member of the independent body, belonging to the Reverend Mr. Leafchild's Bridge Street Congregation and the May missionary meetings were a great event to us children, for, taking lunch with us, we sometimes picnicked in the gallery of the selected chapel, and divided our time between listening to thrilling stories of the missionaries and more physical pleasures. A number of these rather jolly divines often dined at our house and the dinner-party of the ministers was one of the incidents of the May meetings. There was a certain Mr. Burnett of Cork, who used to keep the table in a roar. To be allowed to dine and listen at a side-table was indeed a treat. But on one occasion, my name, alas, was in the black book, for some childish misdemeanor, I forget what but the punishment I well remember. I was sent up to the attics instead of being allowed to join the dinner party. Upstairs in the dark, I leaned over the banisters, watched the light stream out from the dining room as the servants carried the dishes in and out, and listened to the cheerful buzz of voices and frequent peals of laughter as the door opened. I felt very miserable, with also a sense of guilt that I should have been so wicked as to let my name get into the black book, for I always accepted, without thought of resistance, the decrees of my superiors. The fact that those in authority were capable of injustice or stupidity was a perception of later growth. The impression made by this little incident on a childish mind was curiously shown on my revisiting Bristol after an absence of nearly forty years. Wishing to see the scene of my early childhood, I called at the Wilson Street house, and its occupants kindly allowed me to enter my old home, the home which I remembered as so large but which then looked so small. All was changed. The pleasant walled-in garden across the street with its fine fruit trees, where we played for hours together with a neighbor's children, 
was turned into a carpenter's yard. The long garden behind the house, with its fine trees and stable opening into a back street, was built over. But as I stood in the hall and looked up, I suddenly seemed to see a little childish face peeping wistfully over the banisters and the whole scene of that dining-room paradise from which the child was banished rose vividly before me. But a stranger incident still occurred as I stood there. The sound of a latch-key was heard in the hall door, and a figure that I at once recognized as my father's in a white flannel suit seemed to enter and look smilingly at me. It was only a momentary mental vision, but it was wonderfully vivid, and I then remembered what I had utterly forgotten, forgotten certainly for forty years, that our father would sometimes remain late at his sugar-house and come home in the white flannel suit worn in the heated rooms of the refinery, letting himself into the house with a rather peculiar latch-key. Far clearer and more varied recollections are, however, connected with the house in Nelson Street, to which we moved in 1824, and whence the family emigrated to New York in 1832. This comfortable family home, made by throwing two houses together, with its walled-in courtyard leading to the sugar refinery and my father's offices, was our town residence for eight very happy years. Here the group of brothers and sisters grew up together, taking daily walks with our governess into the lovely environs of the then small town. We became familiar with St. Vincent's Rocks and the Hot Wells, with Clifton Down and Lee Woods, which were not built on then. The suspension bridge across the Avon was a thing of the future, and Cook's Folly stood far away on the wild Durdham Down. In another direction, Mother Pugsley's field, with its healing spring leading out of King's Down Parade, was a favorite walk, for passing down the fine avenue of elms we stood at the great iron gates of Sir Richard Vaughan's place to admire the peacocks, and then passed up the lane towards Redland, where violets grew on the grassy banks and natural curiosities could be collected. All these neighborhoods were delightfully free and open. Our governess encouraged our natural tastes, and the children's pennies were often expended in purchasing the landscape stones and Bristol diamonds offered for sale on Clifton Down. In still another direction, the brook, leading through pleasant fields to the distant Beaufort woods, had a never-ending charm. Daily, and often twice a day, the group of children with their governess wandered to these pleasant spots. In the summertime, Weston-super-Mar and Clevedon gave endless seaside delights, 
and furnished a charming picture gallery through all the subsequent wanderings of later life. During the last years of our Bristol life, a house at Olveston, about nine miles from town, was rented as a summer residence. This afforded fresh delight. Not only was the neighborhood beautiful and interesting with views of the Welsh mountains seen across the Severn from a high common nearby, and the remains of an old abbey where wolves' heads were formerly taken as tribute still remained, but the large, well-stocked garden was separated from the orchard by a rapid stream over which two tiny bridges were thrown. To active, imaginative children, this little domain was a source of never-ending enjoyment. Whether cherishing pet animals, cultivating gardens, or playing Robinson Crusoe. When not staying in town, we lived in this pleasant place, my father driving out from business daily. Only on rare occasions did any of the children go to school. Governesses and masters at home supplied the necessary book knowledge, and a passion for reading grew up which made the present of a new book the greatest delight, and our own pocket money was chiefly spent in buying books. Whilst the home life was thus rich and satisfying to children, echoes from the outside world came vaguely to us. The Bristol riots took place during this period, and I remember watching the glare of incendiary fires from the heights round our country home. Also, I vividly recall the chairing of Bright and Prothero, with their red and yellow colors, and the illumination of the house and premises in Nelson Street in honor of this liberal victory. Our interest was early enlisted in the anti-slavery struggle then vigorously proceeding in England, and Wilberforce was an heroic name. The children voluntarily gave up the use of sugar as a slave product, although it was only in later years when, living in America, that they threw themselves ardently into the tremendous fight. My father was an active member of the independent body and strongly opposed to the established church. Rags of popery was a phrase very early learned in a parrot-like way, but a very strong sense of religion was early implanted. The Bible was held in affectionate reverence. Mrs. Sherwood's stories were favorite books and although we soon learned to skip the endless disquisitions on metaphysical dogmas which they contained, yet goodness, gentleness, and reverence were inseparably blended with breezy commons, lovely woods, clear streams, and waterfalls from reading those charming storybooks. Religion thus became associated with all that was beautiful in nature and lovely in social life. 
Mula and Crake, the founders of the Plymouth Brethren, were then beginning their work in Bristol, and I was much impressed by the earnest eloquence of the young Scotch evangelist. End of chapter 1, part 1